All right, we want to read our scriptures for today. Our Old Testament text is taken from Exodus, the 13th chapter, verses 3 through 10. The children of Israel are still in Egypt, but they're getting ready to go. And they're going to have some things they're supposed to do and what it all means. So listen here to God's word. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib you are to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Amen. Then we'll turn to Luke chapter 19 for our gospel reading, a traditional text for Palm Sunday. It speaks of Jesus' triumphal entry. We'll read verses 28 through 44 of Luke chapter 19. Listen here again to God's Word. After Jesus had said these things, He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When He approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Amen. 
And then our main text today is Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, which is to say the entirety of the chapter. Again, listen here to God's word. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless." And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an internal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said it with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over the fire, came out of the altar, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Amen. Well, we'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Gracious God.
we come on this Palm Sunday with acclamation in our hearts, our minds, and on our tongues. We give thanks to you. Thank you, God, that you speak, that you reveal yourself and your purpose to us, and you reveal us to ourselves as well. So we pray that, Lord, in this preaching of your word today, that, Lord, you may reveal yourself to us, that you may speak into our hearts and into our lives, and that we may grow in the knowledge of you and in the knowledge of how we should walk before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the Lord of all. Amen. The Word of God is described in the Bible as a two-edged sword. Now, that may sound like uh, sort of frivolous information, but it really declares uh, an important point for us. And indeed, we'll see today that it is a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword is one that cuts on both sides. And so, on the one hand, the Word of God declares truth, says, here's truth. On the other hand, it exposes what's false, says, this is falsehood. So, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts. You know, the early apologists in the church, we're talking about from, say, 100 to 250, they always, they often use, I shouldn't say always, they, they often use that expression, that if you proclaim the truth, inevitably you're going to have to expose falsehood. And that's what's going to happen. Well, Palm Sunday, the text we read from Luke 19 today, certainly fits that mold. There's praise and there's acclamation. Uh, praise to the King. Uh, he's the Christ. The, you know, all this praise is there. It's right and it's good. It's the truth as it should be. Now, there's some discordance because the Pharisees say, well, hold on, they should be saying things like this. Uh, so, there's some discordance, but it's, it's all right. But then, something remarkable happens in Luke's account of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry. He's the only gospel writer who includes this. That is that last part we read where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. There are only, this is one of only two incidents in the Bible where Jesus is said to weep. He may have wept a lot more, but this, this was important enough that, that God wants us to know that Jesus wept as He was here on, on, on Palm Sunday on the triumphal entry. See, he approaches the city, He looks over it, and He weeps. And it says why He weeps. He says, it says that He weeps because He can see what lies ahead for Jerusalem. And He describes that your, your enemies are going to surround you, they're going to build up siege walls. Uh, there's going to be all kind of bad things happening. They're going to tear down your, your buildings. There won't be one stone left upon another. So, palm branches and grapes of wrath indeed. Two edges of a very, very sharp sword. And Jesus is the basis for both. Now, that provides an apt background for Revelation 14, because it is a two-edged vision. So, let's go to it. We start with the palm branches. The first six verses of chapter 14 of Revelation are palm branches, they're, they're acclamations. Uh, it's a respite, if you would, for the church in the first century who receives this. It's a respite for all those who've read it, have been reading this down through the ages. It's a respite for us. So, let's do a little bit of, so you can see how this is a respite for you and for them. Let's, I'm going to do a little hermeneutics 201. Now, this is not hermeneutics 101, this is hermeneutics 201, all right? And that says that these texts 
always have a then and there application, but they also have a here and now application. Uh, this is just the way it is. The, the, the texts are not fairy tales, they're not novels, they're not made up. They're written to particular circumstances, to particular people, or to a particular person. So they're always grounded in history, all right? You have to know the historicity of the gospel, of the whole biblical revelation is extraordinarily important because people say, well, it's just myth, it's just made up stuff. It's not. It's always grounded in history. So uh, they're always sent there. Uh, but even though it was sent to a particular person or people group or to a particular circumstance, it, it's God's Word, it's inspired, and it has application for us on down through the centuries. The millennium, we, millennia we can say now. So, we're going to put our first projection up there. Here's what uh, Paul tells us in Romans 15. He says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, he writes that to the, the church at Rome, right? He, he does that. He says, that's why all these, these things were written down, but that applies to us as well. We're glad to hear that word. I'm encouraged by that, that we might have hope. He says much the same thing in, uh, when he writes to the Corinthian church. He says, now he's, he's talking about uh, when the children of Israel, why they spend so much time, how they come out of Egypt, and they spend all this time in the wilderness, and he, he describes that. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says, now these things happen to them. In other words, do you hear that? It really took place. These things we're talking about, they really happened to them. These things happened to them. But, as an example, and they were written for our instruction. How about that? Well, I'm glad he took, that Paul wrote that. Under the, when we say Paul, we mean the Holy Spirit speaking in and through Paul. I'm glad that, that he said that to the Corinthians and that he said it to us as well. Those things were written, as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Now, uh, consider what's been said to the, those seven churches and to us in the, the, the vision we just saw last week. It says that the beast on the land, you know, the beast from the sea, is going to make war on the saints. Uh, I think we have a projection of that. Do we have it set up there now? Yeah. Uh, it was given to them to make war on the saints and to overcome them. Huh. That's not encouraging news. And then you go a little farther on in the vision, and the beast from the land, it says that he will cause many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Whew. So we've just come, they've just read this whole chapter 13, this whole vision there of defeat, of being overcome, of being killed. And they would have experienced this already uh, in, in various places where there were persecutions going on. Eventually, as I said, Paul and Peter will be executed under this uh, extended persecution as well. Uh, and we have things in our own day that make us feel badly, but we, we understand it. Now, all that is true, all that in chapter 13 is true, but you have to hear the rest of the story. You have to have a heavenly perspective so you have some respite from all this bad news. And so he talks here, says, I looked and behold the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Now that Mount Zion is not located in Jerusalem. 
that Mount Zion that he's talking about is in heaven. It's from heaven. That's where he's speaking of. Uh, this scene takes place there. Now, I think they're going to project a passage from Hebrews 12 up there. Now, there are some scholars who think that Hebrews 12, this passage here, was written after John had received this vision, and the writer of Hebrews 12 used that for this particular encouragement. I don't know that I necessarily believe that, but some people think that. But here's, here's the point. It, it, the, the two are parallel. Here's what it says. But you, Christian people, the writer of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So that's where we've come to. We're all seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We know from Ephesians 1, but when, when he sees this vision, when Jesus gives this to John, that's where they are. They're in the heavenlies. It's a heavenly vision. It's a respite from all the things we see going on here on earth and the things that we read about. Notice it has all the personnel that we, we, we talked about. It has the throne. It has uh, the, the, the four living creatures here in, in, in 14, I mean. Uh, it has the, the elders. It has all the sounds. The sound system of heaven is working fine. So that's where it is. Uh, the main focus, though, of this passage of these first six verses are the 144,000. Now, we've already talked about them and preached about them in a previous chapter, previous sermon. I'll remind you that our understanding, my understanding, I think it's a good understanding, that 144,000 stand represent all the elect, all the re redeemed, all the people of God down through the millennia. That's what it represents. So, the main focus of these first six verses where the palm branches are going up are those 144,000, that is, all the people of God down through history. Now, the first thing it says about them is that they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, etc. They sang a new song. Wow. There's a song in our hymnal, I think it's hymn number 448 or 484, something like that. It has the fours and eights in it, anyway. Before the throne of God above. You know, you know that song, Before the Throne of God Above? That's, that's what this, they're, they're singing a new song there, and they're singing it to God. They're singing it to, the elders can hear. It's all good stuff like that. And no one else can learn it. That's what it says. No one can learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. I think that bespeaks the joy of the Lord. That's just, just my own understanding, is that you, if, if God redeems you, makes you His own, there's a joy He puts in your heart that cannot be suppressed. It wants to find expression, not to be suppressed, but expressed. Uh, it reminds me of Psalm 96 where it says, uh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name. You know, we memorize that. And here we do it. And I've, if you've listened to our, our the daily devotions, I've encouraged you to sing. Whether by yourself or with your spouse, with your family or with us, sing. It's a mark of the 144,000. Now, for people like me and like Pastor Michael and Scott Nice, Pastor Christ Reformed Church, people who don't sound so hot when they sing, here 
we're going to sing well. Hallelujah. We'll sing loudly. We'll sing well. We'll sing just as we should. It'll be beautiful. I long to sing that way. Do you ever sing a song and, man, I can't hit that note. I don't even know what that note is. Yeah. Even some of these singers sitting out there, they've experienced that. Here in Mount Zion, we will not experience that at all. We'll hit every note just as it should be. What a joyous way to give expression to the gratitude we have in our hearts toward God. Uh, so they sing a new song. Uh, they've been purchased from the earth or from the land. Now, I'm going to put up again, the, the, I had this last week. Uh, the word used there is the word gay. You see it there in, in, in the uh, text. Uh, that's the Greek word, it's just two little letters, G-A. It's used, <clears throat> it's used 68 times in Revelation, and it has a whole range of meanings. And I have some of them listed there, maybe the whole of earth, mankind, the land of a particular nation, or the land that's compared with water, or the land that's compared with sea, etc. Things like that. Well, here we need to apply hermeneutics 201. On the one hand, it refers to those who've been redeemed right then from the land of Israel. Up to that point, it refers to them. Been purchased and they came from the, from the land, from Israel. We'll see more about that in, in about 15 minutes or so, perhaps. Uh, but it also refers to those on down through the ages who are saved from the earth. Uh, they've been purchased from there, uh, from Jerusalem and Israel then and for us now. So what are the marks of these 144,000? The marks are causes for great joy as well. Here's the first one. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Well, man, I must not qualify, right? I'm married. I have six kids. We're trying for more. <laughs> you know, you think, well, well, I, I must not be among those, those uh, 144,000 because I've not been chased. That, that, that's, remember what we said before, Revelation is a book not of pictures per se, but of images. This means all those have not followed a foreign God. They've been faithful to God alone. How many times, <coughs> excuse me, in the Old Testament, do you hear God accuse His people of harlotry, of being unfaithful to Him by being, seeking other gods? That's how this needs to be understood. You need to know that. Now, uh, notice what it says, they do. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're followers of Jesus, not someone else. I've told you years ago about a time when I had been a Christian for maybe uh, a year or so, maybe I don't know if that long, and I was in a uh, uh, the bookstore at Purdue, my wife, I know the name of it, I can't think of it right now. Vaughn's bookstore, there were V-O-N-N-S. And I saw this book there that said, the books, the lost books of the Garden of Eden. Well, man, man, I want three. <laughs> no, I just got one, I, I bought one. And I went over to the, the place where we had fellowship, the upper room bookstore, and I showed it to the men there. And... Uh, 
they weren't nearly as excited as I was. <laughs> they said, now, John, you realize that's going to be extra biblical material that's going to contradict <clears throat> or try to add to or take away from some of those things that you read about in the Bible. We don't think you ought to keep it. I said, well, it's just a book. So I go out here, I'm walking up State Street, going past the Cranert building, and uh, I'm, what am I going to do? I took the book and threw it in the trash. I feel like I was a significant uh, milestone in my Christian walk. My elders had told me, those who were responsible for me, that they thought I should not read that, that it would, would not be good for me. Uh, and I, I wanted to follow the Lord Jesus. And so I took their advice, I threw that book away. Now eventually, I read all those things. It's part of my studies at Princeton. Uh, that was just a popularized kind of thing to, to get us all excited. But you know, it's, it's the pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament. All kind of stuff is in there, and it's fantastic things. It's, it's things that are not true. How about people who dabble with Zen, who listen to some other religion? Islam must be right. Even Judaism. Well, no, Judaism, as it is, is wrong. They reject the Lord Jesus Christ. People who go to astrology to find out what's going to happen, those are all false gods. And that's not typical of the 144,000. It says that they are not only chaste, but they are purchased as first fruits. Now, remember that slide from Hebrews 12. We're going to put it back up again, I believe. Uh, it, it says that it's the church of the firstborn. You know, we are, as part of that, <coughs> excuse me, we're like Jesus is the firstborn. We're, we're brought into Him. And so we have all the privileges, all the blessings of being the church of the firstborn. Here it talks about them as the first fruits. Well, yes, that's the same. The first fruits of the firstborn are the ones, the first one that comes from the womb. It says, that's us. And then finally it says, the third mark, it says there's no lie in their mouth. They're blameless. They're lovers of the truth. You know, in 2 Thessalonians 2, I think it's 10 or 11, somewhere in through there, it says that those folks who weren't saved, going to perdition, for they did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. Well, praise God, these things are marks of the 144,000, which is to say the marks of the people of God down through the ages. All these things together add up to the name of Jesus being sealed on our forehead and on our hands. So we do that. Now, that's why I, I did that section from uh, Exodus 13. We're going to put that up here. See what it says there? As we read through it, it says, You shall observe this. You shall tell your son. It is because of what the Lord did for me. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. That's the mark. That's the seal. The way we think and what we, 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 how we think about things and, and what we do and how we tell them to our children and to the people around us, that's the mark. That's how you tell the mark. 
Now, if you've ever been on a plane going over to Israel or coming back from Israel, you'll have lots of Jewish people on there. And inevitably, during the, while you're on the flight, they'll get up and they'll walk to the back. Some of them, you know, have these things wrapped around their arm and have some things uh, to their forehead where they actually have, you know, pieces of Scripture in there and they have prayers in there. And they go back, to, you know, and they're praying to the Lord. Well, that's not what this meant. That's not fulfilling what God said to do in Exodus 13. Uh, that's not what it's meant at all. Uh, instead, our thoughts and our actions, I think, are more reflective if you think of, of Psalm 1, the first three verses. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the path of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So, don't go there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That's the mark of the people of God. Now, it doesn't say that they're not killed. It doesn't say that. It says that here's what marks them, how blessed they are. Palm branches indeed. Hallelujah. All that's for us and for the people of God. Now, we have to do the grapes of wrath. A lot of stuff in there that people are uh, concerned about, excited about, one way or the other. Uh, what we have here are initially three angels. These three angels provide short-term insight, prophetic insight, to what's going to happen there in Jerusalem and the land of Israel, and long-term impact for us. The first angel, it says, has an eternal gospel to those who live on the land or on the earth. Now, again, that means for those who lived there in Israel at that time, and for us all down through history, an eternal gospel. And there was a faithful witness of the churches and church people to all those in the, in the after Jesus had raised, been raised from the dead and had ascended, all the way till the destruction of Jerusalem, there was faithful gospel witness to the people in Jerusalem and all the land of Israel. Uh, we'll see in just a little bit the fruit of that. Uh, but it says, to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Do you know how the first, how Paul, we'll just do Paul, how he thought about that? Here's what he says in Romans uh, 16. We got that? They do. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and has been made known to all the nations. He understood that, that this, is, this is it. There been, it's been made known to all the nations. In Colossians 1, which uh, he writes a little bit after this, he tells them, uh, in the word of truth, the gospel has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So they understood, Paul did and the other folks, that the gospel's gone all the way out, all where it needs to go. Did you know that the gospel went to India? We're trying to take the gospel to India. The gospel went to India. St. Thomas went there. When we were in seminary, we had a friend from uh, India who said he belonged to the church of St. Thomas and <coughs> they knew right where Thomas had preached and what he had done. So the, the apostles scattered all around and took the gospel to the whole world, this eternal gospel. Now, uh, what are the marks of the gospel? They're said with a loud voice. That means with certainty, no quavering, no shaking. This is it, this is the truth. And really what he says here are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, Fear God. 
on the other is worship Him, the one who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. Those are, those are not antipodal. Those, are, those aren't in opposition to one another. Those are, are two, two faces of one coin. Fear God, not an abject, cringy kind of fear, but oh man, God is God. Fear Him, but worship Him. That's the eternal gospel that God gives to us. Now, the second angel has a proclamation with true insight. He says, Babylon is done for. Babylon has fallen. Well, Babylon had fallen long before this, right? Well, if you think of in just literal terms, yeah, but the Babylon he's referring to there is Jerusalem. That's the then and there. That's Jerusalem. Now, you say, hold on, John. It doesn't say Jerusalem. It says Babylon. Okay, let's turn back to Galatians chapter 4. Here's what it says. This is where you get uh, the whole notion of uh, role reversal, how things are, where they should not be. It says, there it's going to be not Babylon, but something else. It says, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So when you read the story of Hagar and Abraham in Genesis, know that she represents this present Jerusalem. That is the, the, the people of Judaism who reject Christ. Likewise here, Babylon, it says, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Uh, so what, what the second angel here is proclaiming is Jerusalem is done. That's why Jesus was weeping on Palm Sunday. He could see this 40 years down the road. This destruction would happen, and he wept. Now it says that she's made uh, the people drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. What is that? I think we can see what it is in Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. You turn away from that which God has sent. God sent his son. He sent the Lord Jesus, and they turned their heart away from him. Not just them, but people down through the ages, people today, turned their heart away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Whose heart turns away from the Lord, for that kind of person, he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. That's judgment. That's being in a desert place. <clears throat> you know, Jesus in this book of Revelation says lots of harsh things about the Jews. Twice, I guess it's 2.9 or 2.6 and 3.6, he calls the, the local synagogue where in those towns a synagogue of Satan. And we, we, we've said a lot of things where, you, you know, we're Jews there. That's no basis for anti-Semitism. We're, we're nothing like that. But we need to understand that Judaism, as practiced from the time of AD 70 on, is not the religion of the Old Testament. They reject the primary purpose of the Old Testament, which was to reveal Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If you reject that, you cannot 
properly understand the Old Testament. You can't be that people. So, but, but that's no basis for anti-Semitism. There's still people who need the gospel. Jews, Americans, Koreans, Greeks, Italians, Germans, all of us need the Lord Jesus. The third angel does a pronouncement of a terrible wrath that's being poured out. He said with a loud voice, this was certainty. This is what's going to happen. But my question is this, why is the picture of wine, W-I-N-E, wine, used? That's a, that's a hard thing to figure out. My suggestion is this. <clears throat> well, the, the image comes from, from the Old Testament, Psalm 75, which uh, Jade's going to put up right now. Uh, it says, for, the, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this, surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So the images from the Old Testament. This, of course, is a favorite text of Oswald Chambers. If you've read a bunch of Oswald, he uses this all the time about drinking it down to the dregs. There's another verse in, in Isaiah 51 says this, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's cup from the Lord's hand, the cup of his anger. The bowl of the cup is reeling, you have drained to the dregs. Same image is there. And what this means, quite simply, is that it's pre- wine is prepared with intentionality. It's, it's not just sort of haphazard. You, you get it, you collect it, you, and you preserve it, you, do, you, you save it. It's going to be a particular taste, a particular way it should be. So God's wrath is not haphazard. It's not unintentional. It's very intentional. The problem that they have, they worship the beast. They have his mark on their head and their hands. They worship how they think and what they do. This is a text that I think is very, very difficult to square with any notion of annihilationism. Now, annihilationism is the thing that says you die and if you're wicked, uh, you get punished for a while, but then you're just gone. I, don't, I, I just can't square that with all the teaching of the Bible, but here's one particular text that I think also is very, very difficult to square with uh, annihilationism. Well, in the midst of all this, how do the saints survive? Verses 12 and 13 tell us. They keep the commandments of God and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the commandments of God, we're all wanting to, to go out there and, and show me that list and I'll do it. We're like the rich young ruler, right? Well, no, go to Matthew 22, 37 through 39. What's the first and foremost commandment they ask him? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's it. Love God. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a second like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments, Jesus says, depend all the law and the prophets. So they keep the commandments of God, and also they do what? I got it here somewhere. Oh, their faith in Jesus. Their faith in Jesus. That specificity again. God is not just some amorphous notion of we can make it whatever we want. No, it's Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Second person of the Trinity. Trinity. 
They're blessed. What do they say? It says, those who die in the Lord from now on, they rest. Something that the wicked do not get, they rest. And it says their deeds follow. They don't go before, which is where we all want to go. We want to put our, our deeds to go before us and somehow make us acceptable to God. They don't. They never will. But they follow with us. I think of Gene Clark, who died Thursday night. Gene Clark was a simple woman, a godly woman. Uh, beyond her family and friends, no one will ever know her or hear of her. I'm sure that in 50 years, no one will remember her name at all, most likely. May I say that she's at rest today. And her deeds, all those things that, where she loved God, she served Him, she did all kinds of things, they followed with her. And God makes sure to love and appreciate and know what they are. Uh, so it says their deeds follow with them. So, now, then we come down to the last part here, verses 14 through 20. I realize I'm over time by about 12 minutes, but we have to finish this because this is what you've been waiting, waiting for me to hear about the harvest. It's the reaping of two harvests. We'll go through them quickly. They happened in AD 70, and it happens onward all the way to the end. Jesus reaps the good harvest. It's a compressed history. It's compressed history right there. Uh, now, the record of Acts tells us what, well, what it says here, that the hours come reap all that. Uh, let's read through these uh, in Acts 5, 14. Here's what it says. Here's, here's the reaping. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Whew! That's called reaping. Acts 6, 7. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's called reaping. Acts 20, 120. Paul's telling the, the people gathered, he says, and you see how many thousands, which if you read the side margin, it says literally 10,000, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So that sickle went over the land of Israel. It's going over the land, the earth as well, reaping a harvest. It's right and good to do so. The harvest continues to this day until the day of the finale. Now, What about the grapes of wrath? 17 through 20 are very, very difficult. The angel does this. It's wrath. It's, it's horrible to think of. I think of like the angel of destruction who passed over the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus, came in and killed the firstborn all through the land. It's a horrible thing like that. I don't think we should mock, belittle, or deny the reality of these verses. They're true. Dare not do that. It's the wine press of God's wrath. That reality lurks in the background of all our minds. That's why this COVID-19 plague is so scary to many people. Because they have no hope for eternity. But there's a certainty that's been written on their souls that God's judgment will come. And it won't be a, a pleasant judgment it's the wine press of God's wrath. We dare not deny, belittle, or mock its reality. Now, how are we to understand this image where it says that the wine press was trodden outside the city? That means outside the covenant community of God. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. 
So 200 miles long and about four feet deep of blood. Now, if you have been listening, you know that we don't think this is a literal picture. It's not a snapshot. Oh, well, here's, here's where we had a river of blood. Four feet deep, 200 miles long. Doesn't say how wide it was. Uh, now, our New American Standard text is an unfortunate translation. It has the correct translation over the side. It says literally, it doesn't say 200 miles. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say that at all. It says 1,600 stadia. Uh, so how are we to understand that? Uh, here is, uh, yeah, here we got it. Uh, 1,600 comes about by 4 times 4 equals 16, and 10 times 10 equals 100, and 16 times 100 equals 1,600. I think 4 represents the four corners of the earth, the four corners of whatever it is, the four angels of the, of the gospels, the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. All, you know, that represents the four corners of the earth. Squared is 16. It means completely done. 10 is the number of, of fullness, of largeness. And 10 times 10 means it's going to be completely full. Multiply those together and you get 1,600. That's what I think it means. It's the fullness, the completeness, the absolute, uh, don't we use the word bounty, but uh, of God's wrath. It's going to be horrible. It's not good. Now, that's one way to understand what that means, what that big flow of blood. There are others. But we need to remember Jesus in giving this revelation to John does in fact use figurative numbers. We already saw it this week or today with the 144,000. So the old thing of gematria comes in. That's why I think that's one way to understand the 1600 stadia in an accurate, representable, understandable fashion. Well, I've preached long, but it's still Palm Sunday. It's not Monday yet. It's Palm Sunday. So there's rejoicing. There's praise. There's hallelujah. But you know what? Friday is coming. It's a two-edged sword. The gospel cuts both ways. Palms of praise, grapes of wrath. We praise God that He's given us lips and a heart and a mind to lift up palms of praise to Him who is the King forever and ever. Amen.